is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website at theresidentreview.com for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. And welcome back to the Resident Review Quick Hit Series, Preparing for the In-Service. It's Tori and Rosie again, and we are going to talk about genitourinary reconstruction and some gender-affirming surgery topics. Yay! <laughs> want to get us started on some high-yield anatomy? More than anything in the world. All right, so we will start out with male anatomy. The penis consists of the root, the body, and the epithelium, or the glands penis. The layers include skin, dartus fascia, buck's fascia, and the tunica albuginea. The neurovascular bundle includes the deep dorsal vein, the dorsal artery, and paired dorsal nerves. And erectile tissue includes the paired corpora cavernosa and corpora spongiosum. The urethra passes through the corpus spongiosum, and the meatus ends at the tip with the glans penis. The vulva includes the mons pubis and labia majora and labia minora, the clitoris and the vestibule. The labia majora includes skin, campus fascia, and collis fascia. This is continuous with scarpus fascia. And the labia majora has an inferior attachment on the ischiopubic rami that prevent the spread of hematomas and infections into that space from the leg. The labia minora are folds of skin without fat, the clitoris is derived from an undifferentiated phallus and has a paired corpora, um, vestibular bulbs, and glands. The vagina is a muscular tubular structure that extends from the vulva to the uterus, and the opening is located posterior to the urethra and is closed by the labia minora. The length is typically six centimeters across the anterior wall and 7.5 centimeters across the posterior wall, and the width is about 2.6 to 3.25 centimeters. The perineum includes the area between the vagina and the anus in women. The perineum includes the area between the vagina and the anus in women and the area between the scrotum and the anus in men. It is also described as the pelvic outlet, which is between the pubic symphysis and the coccyx. It contains two fascial layers, the superficial and deep, and the deep layer is continuous with collies fascia of the thigh. Moving on to arterial supply of the area. The arterial supply is First and foremost, the internal pudendal artery that supplies the perineum, and that comes off as a branch from the internal iliac. The perineal artery itself supplies the perineum and the scrotum slash vulva. The common penile artery has three branches, the bulbo-urethro, dorsal, deep cavernosal branches, and travels below buck's fascia and above the tunica albuginea. Remember that the tunica albuginea envelops the corpus cavernosum. Superficial and deep external pudendal arteries These branch off the medial side of the femoral artery, and they supply the skin of the lower abdomen and anastomose with the internal pudendal artery to supply the genitalia. So remember the internal pudendal and the superficial and deep external pudendal coalesce together to supply everything. The testicular and ovarian arteries branch off of the aorta where the gonads originate, and the uterine artery supplies the vagina. The innervation of the perineum and genitalia includes a pudendal nerve that comes off of S2 to S4. And this follows the course of the internal pudendal artery, the perineal nerve or the deep motor branch, and then the dorsal nerve of the penis and clitoris, the posterior scrotal labial nerves, 
and the inferior anal nerves. So a lot of sensation and a lot of nerves. The ilioinguinal nerve comes off of L1, and this is more or less the anterior scrotal and labial nerve that goes to the root of the penis and mons and upper part of the scrotum and labium majora and innervate the anterior vulva. All right. Thanks, Tori, for finishing that up. Um, we'll talk about now about some defects of the genital urinary system and then how we reconstruct. So you can have congenital or acquired defects. And the different different acquired defects that we often see in test questions include cancer, trauma, um, Peyronie's disease, which correlates with Dupuytren's, chemo radiation, um, which can cause inflammation, ulceration with fibrotic changes, or corneous gangrene. And then when we are thinking between the defect and reconstruction, you want to consider that the area has high bacterial counts. It's the second highest in the body. So it's imperative to avoid wound contamination with stool and urine. It's also difficult to avoid pressure necrosis because this is the area that people sit on. So there are high infection and dehiscence rates, almost 66% dehiscence rate. Um, we can optimize nutritional status to improve this. You also want to talk with your patient about the goals of reconstruction. And if that goal is to return to sexual activity, only about 50% of people actually return. All right. We're first going to start out with a couple of different categories of defects and how they are categorized and how we can go about reconstructing them. So for vaginal and vulvar defects, there is a classification of vaginal defects from Cordero et al. And this is type one and type two. So type one is a partial vaginal defect, and that is either the anterior or lateral wall, a type 1A, or the posterior wall, which is a type 1B. A type two defect is a circumferential uh, defect, and that can be the upper two thirds of the vagina or total defect of the vagina. Different treatments depend on how extensive the defect is. First option that we have is a Singapore flap. Um, this is first described as a 15 by six centimeter skin flap with a medial incision in the thigh crease lateral to the hair bearing area and a posterior flap at the posterior forechet. The arterial supply is the posterior labial arteries, which are branches off of the pudendal artery. Sensation is via the posterior labial branches of the pudendal nerve. There are several variations, including the modified Singapore flap, um, and then the pudendal thigh flap or Singapore flap based off the superficial perineal artery. So that's the modified Singapore is based off the superficial perineal artery as compared to the regular Singapore, which is the posterior labial artery. The superficial perineal nerve supplies sensation to the flap for immediate sensation postoperatively. Can't emphasize this enough. This is commonly tested. If you want immediate sensation after reconstruction, the Singapore flap is the way to go. And it's good for posterior vaginal reconstruction can be used for type 1A defects. So unilateral or bilateral partial wall defects of the vagina. The vertical rectus flap um, is most often used and is most has the most evidence to be used in an APR or LAR defect. These are large composite defects, often in patients that have undergone radiation. So you not only need skin and soft tissue coverage, but you need bulk to basically take up the dead space that's remaining from all the removal of tissue that goes on in these operations. The vertical rectus flap is good for type 1B defects or posterior vaginal wall defects. It's a Mathis in the high type 3 flap, meaning it gets its blood supply from the superior and deep inferior epigastric arteries um, based primarily on the deep inferior epigastric. 
Um, and then it can also be used for type 2A defects. Uh, so circumferential defects of the vagina, the upper two thirds can be reconstructed with a rolled VRAM, um, usually in the case of a cervical or other gynecologic malignancy requiring resection of just the vagina. And the flap width is usually 12 to 15 centimeters in that scenario. If you're needing quite a bit of tissue and you want total vaginal reconstruction with or without a skin paddle, you can use a bilateral gracilis approach. This has inconsistent sensation, but a reliable perforator. You can do either unilateral or bilateral gracilis flaps. Um, and at least at our institution, this is a really common way to reconstruct these defects. Um, it can be used for type 2B circumferential total defects, and that can be done with bilateral myocutaneous flaps. That's typically after total pelvic exoneration. The arterial supply to the gracilis, as we all know, is the medial femoral circumflex artery with secondary minor pedicles derived from the superficial femoral artery in a segmental fashion. In order to identify this flap in the operating room, you want to draw a line from the pubic tubercle and semitendinosus tendon, which denotes the anterior border of the gracilis. Um, and the pedicle will enter seven to 10 centimeters below the pubic tubercle in the space between the adductor longus and magnus. And I believe that that space between the adductor longus and magnus was tested on last year's exam for the gracilis flap. Vulvar reconstruction typically is going to be in the scenario where there's squamous cell carcinoma or other types of skin cancer, lichen sclerosis, or Actually, I think it's lichen sclerosis, mm. whatever, whatever floats your boat <laughs> and HPV and vulvar reconstruction is divided into the upper third, which encompasses the mons and the labia, the middle third, which is the labia proper and the lower third, which is the vaginal orifice and perineum upper third defects. So the mons and the labia may be closed primarily and larger defects can be reconstructed with a pedicled ALT for the pedicled ALT. Um, this is great for large upper third vulvar defects based off of the descending branch of the lateral circumflex artery, and that's found between the vastus lateralis and medialis. For middle third defects encompassing the labia proper, you want to use a Singapore flap, a gracilis flap, or gluteal fold flaps. Gracilis is the most typically used, um, really good in cases with radiation when you need a lot of tissue and you want a reliable perforator. Um, the lotus flap, which just sounds like it was meant to be for vaginal reconstruction, uh, is a modified Singapore flap. And that uses the superficial perineal artery perforators. So basically we're describing what we just described as the modified uh, Singapore flap, but in the design of a lotus. And then the lower third defects, so including the vaginal orifice or perianal perineal defects, um, a gluteal fold flap is a great option. You want to mark preoperatively with the patient in the standing position. So you have a good understanding of how much tissue you have available. That flap is located in the triangle formed by the ischial tuberosity, the anus and the vaginal orifice or scrotum. And that's based off of internal pudendal perforators and may include the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh if sensory component is desired. All right, moving on to penile or scrotal defects. So these are also typically after a resection of lichen sclerosis or cancer and defects are classified as partial or complete. So into our options for reconstructing, we have a radial forearm flap. This is the gold standard for total penile, phalloplasty, and gender affirming surgery. You can have integrated skin island via the anabrachial cutaneous nerve coapted to the pudendal nerve or the dorsal nerve of the penis. Um, the forearm skin is used for a neo-urethra for a central urethral strip, and it's tubed over a 12 to 14 French silicone urinary catheter. 
You can also use a free Sensate osteocutaneous fibula flap. The main advantage of a fib flap over the radial forearm is the avoidance of a prosthesis to provide erectile and sexual function. It's also a less conspicuous donor site. The skin island is innervated via the perineal nerve, and you will need a full thickness skin wrap for the neourethra. So you're more likely to have urethral constriction. The pedicled ALT is our third option for partial or complete defects of the penis. And this is a tube and tube techniques with preservation of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve for sensation. And it can be actually constructed while the flap is still in the thigh. For scrotal reconstruction, this is usually in the absence of prior radiation therapy. You can use a split thickness skin graft, but otherwise we will look into superior medial thigh flaps um, with pouch or a pedicled ALT, a gracilis or tissue expansion. We're often also tested on traumatic amputation of the penis. So for this, you want to attempt microvascular replantation. You keep it in a saline soaked gauze, place it in a sterile bag and place the bag in slush, like any transplant surgery. And then um, you will proceed with urinary diversion with suprapubic catheter, then perform the urethral anastomosis over fully, followed by corporal body coaptation by approximating the tunica alveginia followed by microsurgical anastomosis of the dorsal vessels, nerves, and skin closure. Moving on, we're going to talk about a topic that's come up much more and more as it should on the in-service in the last few years, and this is gender affirmation and transgender surgery. So in terms of just some stats, uh, 1.4 million people currently identify as transgender. In terms of the categorization of gender dysphoria, This is defined by DSM-5 criteria as a person whose gender at birth is incongruent with their gender identity. There is quite a bit to know about pre-op assessment for patients who want to undergo gender-affirming surgery, and that is defined by the WPATH, or the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Guidelines. Briefly, we'll talk about the general guidelines and then go into some specifics based off the type of surgery that people are wanting to undergo. So all patients must have capacity for informed consent and the age of consent is 18 years. All patients must have a referral from a mental health professional that documents persistent gender dysphoria. One referral is required for chest reconstruction. Two referrals are required for patients seeking genital reconstruction. Their comorbidities should be managed and hormone therapy is not required for chest affirmation, but is encouraged for a year prior to surgery, especially for male to female surgery for aesthetic purposes. Hormone therapy is required for 12 months prior to any general reconstruction surgery and patients must have lived for 12 months continuously in their gender role. So we're just going to briefly go through the Uh, requirements based off of type of surgery. So for chest and breast surgery, you need one referral from a documented mental health provider. You obviously have to have capacity for informed consent. And for chest surgery itself, um, if you're going female to male, you can undergo this at age less than 18 if they have a consenting guardian. And that's in the setting of having a consenting guardian if you're less than 18 living in your congruent identity for at least one year and having completed a year of testosterone therapy for female to male chest surgery. That's the only exception to the 18 rule. Continuing on for chest and breast surgery, hormone therapy not required and living in congruence with their gender identity not required. For general surgery, you do need two referrals from documented mental health or other providers. You are required to be greater than 18, required to have greater than a year of hormone therapy, and required to be living in gender role for greater than a year. 
And then for facial or other gender affirmation surgery, really the only requirement is capacity for informed consent and age greater than 18. There are no requirements for documented um, sort of mental health approval and hormonal therapy or anything like that. All right, now we're gonna talk a little bit more about the surgery itself, now that we've gotten past the guidelines. Yeah, we can talk um, specifically for a male to female transition. This is the largest portion of the transgender population. For chest affirmation surgery, it's usually an implant-based breast augmentation. Hormone therapy is not required, like Tori said. Estrogen is recommended prior to surgery to allow for breast growth and improve results. And we can also utilize fat grafting. And the approach to operative management is similar in cis patients, although the male chest is slightly wider. So the preference for the incision and plane is surgeon dependent and the complications are similar. They will have to undergo breast mammography every two years, starting at age 50 or five to 10 years after the initial start of the feminizing hormone. General reconstruction, again, you wanna talk with your patients about their goals, but often goals are sexual sensation, functional vagina, and acceptable cosmesis. Penile inversion vaginoplasty is the gold standard, which includes scrotal excision, high-end ligation orchiectomy, dissection of the penis, creation of a neovagina in the prerectal space. And this plane is the rectoprostatic plane to achieve the adequate depth. And then another goal within the surgery is creating a neoclitoris using the glands penis and a neourethra anastomosis. Dissection for the surgery begins in cholesfascia until you get to the central tendon and the perineal body through the non-biliar fascia. Though inversion, vaginoplasty is preferred if there's not sufficient penile or scrotal skin for flaps. This includes limitations in patient anatomy or patient expectation of depth or early hormone blockade. Then intestinal vaginoplasty can be performed. This is also useful in patients who require revision for failed primary vaginoplasty. And this was tested on last year's exam. Mm -hmm. Neovaginal stenosis is the most common complication and patients may experience needle stenosis or splayed urinary stream. And a reminder that if they still have a prostate, they will need to undergo prostate screening even after surgery. Moving on to female to male surgery. For female to male surgery, in terms of chest surgery, we're going to be talking about a subcutaneous mastectomy performed for those that desire chest contour. Goals uh, are obviously up to the patient, but generally include male contour, acceptable positioning of the NAC and minimal scars. Breast size and skin elasticity are the most important factors to consider when you're planning your surgical incisions. So if you have, are treating small breasts or grade one ptosis, then you can actually use liposuction um, or a transareolar approach. If you're dealing with medium-sized breasts or moderate ptosis, then um, you want to think about a concentric or extended concentric design. And for large breasts or those with grade three ptosis, you're talking about a mastectomy and likely free nipple graft as the best option for cosmetic outcome. Post-chest reconstruction uh, should continue cisgender female screening for breast cancer if no complete mastectomy is or just breast reconduct, just breast reduction is performed because those patients will still have breast tissue present. In terms of genital surgery for female to male transition, the goals of reconstruction are to create an ideal neophallus that is aesthetically pleasing, has intact tactile and erogenous sensation, provides standing urination, and imparts minimal donor site morbidity. The options for this are first off metoidoplasty. This involves creation of a neophallus from a hypertrophied clitoris, and the clitoris is dissected with detachment of clitoral ligament and the division of the urethral plate with urethroplasty to increase neophallus length. 
The drawback is that this provides a shorter neophallus, maximizing out at five to seven centimeters. The pedicled phalloplasty with an ALT that can be used as a tube within a tube flap design for neourethral formation. It has a reliable vascular supply and a discrete donor site. The difficulties with this flap include a thick sub-Q layer that limits tube formation and need for uh, need for prosthetic uh, for erectile function. Phalloplasty with a free radial form is often cited as the gold standard. It provides a aesthetic neophallus with adequate length for standing urination. Neurography can be performed between the antebrachial cutaneous and dorsal clitoral or ilioinguinal nerves for sensation. And then the donor site morbidity is the downside that many patients state is quite unacceptable. Um, urologic dysfunction, including urethral strictures and fistulae are the most common complications in this surgery. And most patients undergo TAHBSO prior to phalloplasty, um, but they will still need cervical cancer screening after general recon um, if their cervix is still present. Um, so just kind of going briefly through the different options for female to male general reconstruction. So in terms of length, um, the pedicled ALT and free radial forum provide the best outcomes, the metoidoplasty often is insufficient in length, depending on what the patient's goals are. And also it is a bit difficult to achieve standing urination, whereas ALT and radial forearm are great for that. In terms of sensation, the metoidoplasty and free radial forearm are the best options. The pedicled ALT tends to have poor um, or less uh, successful sensation. And then in terms of donor morbidity, most people cite the free radial forearm as the highest uh, donor morbidity, whereas the ALT and the metoidoplasty have minimal donor site morbidity. And that is it for our quick hits. And we do have some fast facts to read. So I'm um, going to go through them really quickly. For classification of vaginal defects, if you're talking, if they're talking about this on the test, you want to remember that type one is a partial defect. Type two is a circumferential defect. Type one A is the anterior lateral wall partial defect. Type 1B is a posterior wall partial defect. The options for vaginal or vulvar reconstruction, just remember Singapore for, for sensation. That is commonly tested as the best option for immediate sensation for vaginal reconstruction. And then remember that the VRAM is shown with evidence to be beneficial in APR and LAR defects. The gold standard for phalloplasty is the radial forearm, though this does have the greatest donor site morbidity and is becoming kind of a debated topic in the literature. And then the gold standard for male to female transition and general surgery is penile and virgin vaginoplasty, though intestinal vaginoplasty is the preferred option if the anatomy is not conducive to or appropriate for penile scrotal flaps. And that may or may not be becoming more common as more um, younger patients are initiating hormonal therapy earlier in life and uh, puberty is being stunted. And then the WPATH guidelines we went over, know them before the test. They are often uh, tested and come up quite frequently. And that's quick hits. GU Recon. Yay. Thanks, Thanks for joining us. See you next time. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.